Thanks, Paul. Good morning. Uh, the story is told of an American pastor and his wife. And he was always very annoyed as she kept accusing him of preaching very boring sermons. And she was annoyed at him because he kept looking for things he would rifle through her bedroom cabinet. So they came to an arrangement very early in their marriage that she would stop pointing out his boring sermons and he would stop looking through her stuff in her bedroom cabinet. After 35 years, the pastor retires. One day he's looking for his favourite pair of socks, as us sad men are prone to do, and he can't find them, and he sees one of his wife's, his wife's drawers lying slightly open, and he can't resist having a wee juke inside. And to his surprise, he finds three eggs and $10,000 in cash. So he goes downstairs and he says, What's the crack? What on earth is going on? I've just had a look in your drawer there, and there's three eggs and $10,000 in cash. And she replies, Well... As per our agreement 35 years ago, every time you preached a boring sermon, I would put an egg in the cabinet. So he gets a very self-satisfied, smug look on his face, and he says, Well, you know what? That's not bad. I'll take that. Just three boring sermons in 35 years. His wife replies, Every time I got a dozen eggs, I sold them. <laughs> so all I'm saying is I'll be keeping an eye out for any eggs that appear in our house this week. But every year, MCF offers baptism to anyone who wants it. And this year is no different now that we've got a return to some sort of normality. We couldn't have it last year, obviously. And in a wee while, I'm going to give you the, the date of this year's baptism and a wee bit more information about how we do it in MCF. Arthur's going to tell us on June the 6th the why we do it, which we look forward to. But this isn't a talk on baptism this morning. But since we're thinking about baptism, I thought we'd have a wee look at one of the most intriguing characters in all of Scripture, John the Baptist. And you may, like me, have watched the government briefings from Downing Street at the first lockdown. Jonathan Van Tam was England's deputy medical officer, JVT, known affectionately. So we're not looking at JVT this morning, we're looking at JTB. And we're going to read some verses from Luke 3. And then we're going to have a, wee, a look at a few wee things just from the first few chapters of Luke's Gospel. And this morning I want to throw out a challenge. If you're here, if you're outside in the cafe, if you're outside, especially if you're watching at home, to anyone who hasn't yet made the decision to follow Jesus, or maybe you've walked away from faith, but deep down you know what the truth is. Either way, I'd like to challenge you this morning to make today D-Day, Decision Day, to make the call one way or the other this morning. So we're going to read uh, from Luke 3, and I think it should be up on the screen if the guys click forward. So Luke 3, uh, we're going to skip a few verses. So let's read from verse 1, Luke 3. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight, every valley shall be filled, and every mountain shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said therefore to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able to raise up from these stones children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. 
Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Verse 15. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his fleshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Verse 21. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, and with you I am well pleased. So we've got four points we're going to think about this morning. The great and the good, familiarity breeds, F2D2, and choose your hall of fame. So we'll go to the, the first one, the next slide. The great and the good. We're reading the first four verses of chapter one that Luke has written as a count for someone called Theophilus. So who was this Theophilus character? Well, scholars aren't entirely sure who he was, but most think that he was a wealthy and influential man, possibly from Antioch. And he was a Gentile, he wasn't a Jew, and he was likely funding Luke to write this account. He wanted to find out more about this Jesus character. And we would call Theophilus in our modern parlance a mover, and he was a big time mover and a shaker. So let's just park that there for a wee second. And let's not forget, it's been 400 years since the Old Testament finished with the book of Malachi. 400 years of absolute silence. And I remember my dad having loads of books by a writer called Harry Ironside. Not the detective in the wheelchair. I'm giving my age away again. Uh, But one of his books was called The 400 Silent Years. So John the Baptist's role is to introduce this new covenant to break the long, long 400 years of silence. And you can imagine people have been saying, where is this Messiah? Some even question God in their defense, Malachi 2.17. Where is this God of justice? Well, let's go back to our friend Theophilus again. And maybe I've got a nasty streak, I probably do, but I like to imagine some of Theophilus' friends, the in crowd, the power brokers, the real housewives of Antioch, reading this scroll from this Dr. Luke. And there would be no chapter divisions in the scroll. But to get to verse 1, and I imagine them reading like, like this. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius, well, he was one of the political elite. Pontius Pilate, well, he was one of the power brokers. Herod, well, he was fabulously wealthy. Philip, well, he was one of the in crowd. Lysanias, well, he was a mover and a shaker. And I can imagine them reading that and thinking, this is good. These people are like us. These people are the political elite, the powerful. Obviously, this God, this Jesus character, like to hang out with the power brokers. And then we read the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. To whom did God entrust this mega task of breaking the 400-year silence and introducing his beloved son, John the Baptist, the wild man from the wilderness, who lived, lived on locusts, on wild honey, dressed in animal skins, whose hair hadn't seen the head and shoulders for weeks, maybe months. Well, we need to be careful about John the Baptist not to be patronizing. What did Jesus say about him? Matthew eleven eleven. I tell you the truth of all who have ever lived, none is greater than John the Baptist. John is very hinge between the old age and the new age. And what God is, what message is God sending us right from the get-go? What is he saying to you and me this morning? Well, if we go to our next slide, just before we answer that question, let's think a little bit about the lineage of Jesus, about his family tree. And I've been looking at it recently, and it blows me away the more I look into it. And I hope I don't offend anybody when I say this, but it's a wee bit of a rogues gallery. Judah, Jacob, Rahab, even David, there's four names for you. And I think as a boy growing up, and maybe this is unfair, I don't know, but I think David got a wee bit of a bye ball. 
He saw a beautiful naked woman bathing. Yes, he lusted after her. Yes, he slept with her. Yes, he had her husband killed. But sure, he was David, and it wasn't as bad as if some Joe Normal had done it. Well, no, what he did was absolutely horrendous. But what does the Bible call him? A man after God's own heart. Isn't that not incredible? What is God saying to us? I think he's saying, look, guys, do you not get it? Is the penny not dropped yet? No matter how high up the social scale you are, no matter what you've done, I deal with people down in the real mess of life. The lives of the rich and famous, the Instagram lifestyle, it's all a load of stuff and nonsense. So I'm thrilled to be able to tell you this morning with the full authority of the Bible, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, but Tim, I don't care. More importantly, God doesn't care what you've done. God's forgiveness, God's total forgiveness is available to you today, this morning, right now. John 6.37, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And our next slide and our second point familiarity breeds. What's that about? Another thing about John the Baptist, you have noticed, he doesn't pull his punches. Sure he doesn't. He says it like it is. Subtlety was not his middle name. But notice what it says in verse 8. Don't say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. What's John the Baptist saying to them here? Well, I think he's saying, guys, don't give me any of your pathetic excuses. But John, my parents are both Christians. The list, the list is endless. But you're John, I've gone to church since I was four. But John, I've taught Sunday school for 20 years. But John, I give give 20% of all my money away to the church. But John, I'm a good person. Ah, well, now we're getting to the nitty-gritty. I'm a good person. John, my good deeds are up here. My bad deeds are away down here. What about your man? Look what he's done. What about your woman? You would never catch me doing that. Well, let's let our imaginations run wild for a wee minute. Run with me on this one. Imagine someone dies and they're standing at the gates of heaven. And the bouncer's there with his clipboard, and he's saying, right, why should I Why should I let you in here? The split second, you open your mouth and you say, I, I did this, I did that. I didn't do this, I didn't do that. The doorman's going to do a Simon Cowell, and Britain's got talent. The hand's going to go up, he's going to tell you to be quiet. And he's going to say to you, are you telling me that God wasted his time? And you might reply, well, I don't understand, big man, what are you, what are you talking about? And the bouncer replies, well, so God's beautiful son... His beloved son was stripped naked, was beaten to a pulp, was put on a cross, had men's filthy spittle dripping down his beard. More to the point, God turned his back on him for three hours for the sins of the world were put on him. And you're telling me because you've been a good boy or a girl, because you were rarely on the naughty step, because you were a good person, God punished his son just for the crack of it? That he wasted his time? I don't think so. The bar is not some bar where you're good, outweighs your bad. God's not going to say, oh, you know what, you've been a good boy, just... But slip around the back and I'll let you in the side door. That would be ridiculous. The bar is utter perfection, nothing less. Romans 3, 23. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But has the penny dropped yet for us? But, but you say, in that case, I'm up the creek without a paddle. Well, yes, you are. But that's the point. The only way you'll get into heaven is if you score the perfect hat-trick. You've got to be totally sinless, totally pure, totally blameless. So how do we achieve that? Well, the irony is it couldn't be any simpler, and at the same time it couldn't be any costlier, because obviously it cost Jesus his life. There's an old hymn I remember singing when I was a wee fella in the age of the dinosaurs. There's life for a look at the crucified one. There's life at this moment for you. Then look, sinner, look unto him who was saved, and be saved, unto him who was nailed to the tree. And let's read some awesome verses on the next slide together in Colossians some of the greatest words in all of Scripture, and this is what's available to you and to me today, 
right now. Chapter chapter 2.13. You were dead because of your sins, and because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ, and he forgave all our sins. Listen to this next. But he cancelled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. Chapter 121. This includes you who were once far away from God. You were his enemies, separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. Yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. And again, listen to these words. As a result, he has brought you into his own presence and you're holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. We're going to be singing about faultless shortly. That is what you can have today by simply acknowledging that when Jesus died on the cross, he did it for your sins, and your good deeds contribute absolutely zip, nothing. They don't achieve anything. Our next point, F2, D2, what's that all about? It's not some new character from a Star Wars film. Uh, And by the way, is Star Wars not the most boring, long-running, pointless franchise in film history? (laughs) Thank you, Ricky. We've offended all the Star Wars fans. But F to the power of 2, D to the power of 2. What's that about? Two Fs for you, first of all. In Luke 5, we have the famous story of Jesus healing the paralyzed man. I want you to imagine this scene. We're told that people have come from every village in Galilee and Judea, even up from Jerusalem, to hear this great teacher everybody's talking about. So the place is absolutely rammed. No social distancing whatsoever. Every window's wide open. People are craning their necks to get a glimpse of this famous rabbi who's the talk of the country. And then there's a wee noise on the roof, but nobody pays any attention. It's probably just a wee bird or something. Then there's a wee a tapping noise, and a wee cloud of dust floats down from the ceiling. Then the noise gets louder. Chunks of plaster start coming down. People are now looking up, and they're not even paying attention to the famous visiting speaker. Jesus, of course, isn't worried because he knows exactly what's going on. And then maybe a clatter of tiles come down. Somebody gets a whack in the head. Somebody's on their mobile calling the paramedics, and David Tag and Esmond turned up in the ambulance. The owner of the house is thinking, how on earth am I going to explain this to Hughes Insurance in the morning? I'm going to be in the phone for hours. What's the point? Does Jesus see the mess they've made? Well, no, of course he doesn't. He sees their faith, not their mess. And it's the same for you and me this morning. Jesus sees us in all our mess, no matter, no matter how big we think that mess is. But note what Jesus says to the paralyzed man. He says, man, your sins are forgiven you. And I wonder, did that annoy the man and his friends? I wonder what the friend's thinking, Look, teacher, no offence to me, but we we brought our friend here to be healed, not to have his sins forgiven. But Jesus always sees the real need, doesn't he, behind the apparently to us obvious need. Jesus doesn't do makeovers. He's not some here today, gone tomorrow, hipster wellness guru, or two Fs. Jesus is not a fixer. He's a forgiver. You don't come to Jesus to enhance your lifestyle. You come to Jesus to have your sins forgiven. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but... Got to be one of the greatest buts in the Bible. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Our two days. Notice what the Pharisees said. They were the religious elite, the nitpickers of the law. And they were there too, just trying to catch out this jumped up wannabe rabbi in their opinion. Who is this who speaks blasphemy, they said? Who is able to forgive sins but God alone? Well, who indeed? If the doors of the centre suddenly burst open and someone walked up to the front tells me to shut up, Well, you'd be on his side already with that one. But if he says, I am Jesus Christ, I am God's son, that is, there's no gray in that. That is a totally black and white statement. He's either God's son or he's not. Or two Ds. You have to decide this morning, is Jesus Christ deity 
or is he deceiver? You don't have the option of any grey or middle ground. You can't take the risk to put that decision off. You need to make the call this morning on that one. C.S. Lewis nailed it in his famous quote, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. Lewis says that is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he has a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. So what are you going to do with this Jesus this morning? Our final point, choose your hall of fame. Jesus was down in Nazareth, and it's interesting to note that the people of his hometown totally rejected him. And chapter 4 of Luke, it says, When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and they drove him out of the town. Luke goes on to tell us they were going to throw him off a cliff, but he evaded them. And Jesus had said earlier in verse 24, No prophet is acceptable in his hometown. So where did he go? Verse 31 tells us he went to Capernaum. And Nazareth Nazareth is 1,300 feet above sea level, and Capernaum is 700 feet below sea level. And I find it reassuring, and there's a bit of a theme here, isn't there, that Jesus comes down to our level, right into the mess and the grime of our experience, behind our nice curtains and our nicely mown lawns, behind our nice respectable fronts, right into the mess of our living rooms. But it's interesting to note that Jesus is rejected not so much in Sodom and Gomorrah, but in Nazareth, the hometown boy where everyone, everyone knew him. Being familiar with Jesus can be a very dangerous thing. And when Jesus arrived in Capernaum, we're told he was teaching in the synagogue on the Sabbath, and there was a demon-possessed man in the audience who screamed out. Can you imagine being there? How terrifying. The demon said, Ha! What have you got to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? I know who you are. You've come to destroy us. You're the Holy One of God. And that statement is where the danger, where the booby trap lies hidden. The demon knows who Jesus is, and he confesses it. But, but, it's a confession of truth. It's not a, not a confession of faith. It's head knowledge. It's not heart knowledge. The very devil knows that Jesus is the Christ come to save the world. But that means nothing. If it's there, if it's there and not here, we have to make it personal. So you can know, or we can know, I can know, and even say true things about Jesus, but it's meaningless, dangerous, more to the point, if it's just there and not in here. I didn't know whether to include this quote or not, but it says this, we may go on all our lives saying, I know that, and I know that, and sink at last into hell with the words on our lips. Very challenging words for us all to think about. But finally, let's take a wee look at Peter. You just have to love Peter. In chapter 5, we read the story of Jesus calling his first disciples. And then after a night of catching no fish, Jesus tells them to cast out their nets again. And you can just see Peter thinking, that's an absolute blinking waste of time, this. And of course, they catch so many fish, their nets are bursting. So what does Peter say then? He says, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Was Peter a follower of Jesus before they caught the fish, when he called him teacher or master? Well, of course he was. What happened afterwards then when he addressed him as Lord? I think he had a new appreciation of two things. First of all, the depth of his own sinfulness. Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. And two, a new appreciation of who Jesus is, God in the flesh, Lord. And maybe there's someone here this morning, maybe you're watching at home this morning and you've walked away from faith. Maybe you used to come here, or maybe you've just drifted away. That same experience is available to you this morning, to come back to him, to have a new appreciation of your own sinfulness, to see him as Lord. 
and that you can have that this morning. God is waiting for you like the prodigal son with his arms wide open, saying, come back to me this morning. And we're told in Luke 22 that Jesus was seized by the authorities, and then that begins the whole sequence of events leading up to his crucifixion. And we're told about Peter's famous denial of Jesus, not just once, but three times, as I'm sure you know. And Peter was following just behind Jesus, and he was frightened, he was petrified, and he was quite right to be petrified. And we're told elsewhere that he denied Jesus with oaths and curses. And Peter then remembers that Jesus had told him that that would happen. And in verse 62 of chapter 22, it says, He went out and he wept bitterly. But would you, would I have done anything different? I doubt it very much for me anyway. But let's go jump back to just after they catch the fish in chapter 5 and Peter addresses Jesus as Lord. Jesus obviously knows that Peter will deny him. He knows all about Peter's impetuosity. But what did Jesus say in verse 10? He says, from now on you'll be catching people. In effect, Jesus is saying, yep, I know all about your weaknesses and faults, which are many. I know you'll even deny me with language from the gutter, but yep, I can work with you. In fact, I have lots of work for you to do. In fact, you're the rock on which I'm going to build my church across the globe. How encouraging is that this morning? So if you are a follower of Jesus this morning, and you think, me? Sure, I could do nothing of value for God. Think again. Think, Peter. And if you're not a follower of Jesus this morning, I'm tempted to say, would you ever stop faffing about and sort it out this morning? But I wouldn't be so rude as to say that. But if you're not a follower of Jesus this morning, but you say, but surely, I don't even mess up. I can never be one of those holy Joes to quote Johnny from a few weeks ago. Think again. Think, Peter. So final point, next slide. Choose your Hall of Fame. Bobby Richardson, you can see him on the, on the, the left there in his heyday, was a famous baseball player back in the 60s for the New York Yankees. That's him now. He's, he's age 85, same age as Eddie, still going strong. Uh, and for the part of Bobby's career, he played under the legendary manager Casey Stengel. But Stengel liked to swap around his team. And the players never really knew whether or not they were going to get a game. And Bobby found this very unsettling. Stengel was eventually sacked. In came the new manager, Ralph Hook. And right from his arrival, he told Bobby that he had faith in him. And that he'd always be a second base man. He'd be playing every game. And that was exactly the assurance Bobby Richardson needed to go on to become one of the baseball greats. He won seven World Series. He was in seven All-Star teams. And he was in the Hall of Fame. He was a Hall of Famer. I am a sinful man, O oh Lord. Yes, you are. But I have lots of work for you to do. Your place in the team is assured this morning if you put your trust in the ultimate manager. So on to our baptism. We're aiming for Sunday, June the 20th. That is not written in stone. If you have a problem with that date, come and talk to us. But if it is Sunday, June the 20th, that's only four weeks from today. Can you believe that? That's just nuts, isn't it? Four weeks to June the 20th. Um, and on MCF, we believe in post-conversion baptism. Conversion, then immersion. And I'll say, Arthur's going to talk to us a wee bit about that, about the why we do it on June the 6th. The how we do it is very simple in MCF. Uh, when I first started coming to MCF over 20 years ago, we used a swimming pool over in the Bushtown House Hotel on the Garva Line. We've since upgraded to a slightly larger pool called the North Atlantic Ocean. And if we stick our necks, oh, it's up already. We, we usually do it before church on a Sunday. And then we come straight back to the Sandal Centre afterwards for bacon buddies. Sorry if you're a vegetarian, but a swim in the sea and a bacon buddy you cannot be beaten. And on the beach is a class way to do it. We have people stopping us to watch, stopping to watch. We have people asking us what we're doing. Paul brings the guitar, we sing a few songs. It's just a class church family occasion. Celebration would be a much, much better word. If you're not a great swimmer or you can't swim at all for that matter, don't worry, it's not a problem. We just go into waist height. You cross your arms like so, 
be one of us on either side holding you by the shoulder, arm behind your back. You're asked two questions. Your name, do you confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Saviour? Yes, I do. And then we say, I baptise you in the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. And it's down, straight back up again. And then you walk out, everyone's applause and a nice warm towel. If you don't like cold water, you could pray that the water would feel like a warm bath. But I don't fancy your chances of having your prayers answered, if that's not heresy to say that. But it's really quick, you're in and out in no time. So there you go, four weeks. Any questions, come and speak to any of us. Biblical pattern, which we've kind of lost in the modern era, is to come to faith and then pretty much you're baptised immediately. In Acts 8, the famous story of the Ethiopian eunuch who came to faith and then they immediately started looking around for the water to baptise him. And wouldn't it be totally awesome? Wouldn't it be beyond I don't know the words. Awesome is not a big enough word. Wouldn't it be beyond awesome this morning if someone is here, someone is watching at home, puts their trust in Jesus for the first time. Maybe you're on the Alpha course. Put your trust in Jesus for the first time. Come and tell us. You'll be on the list. Or maybe, again, if you're watching at home, maybe you've come back to faith and you've never been baptized. Come and tell us. You'll be on the list. And that beats the excitement of a bacon, even a bacon buddy, hands down. We'll go, go back to slide 10 just for a second, guys, if we can. So just to finally close the photograph of the, the baseball guy, if you can get it. Uh, so we'll go back to our baseball guy, uh, Bobby. There he is, Bobby Richardson. So uh, I was reading about him a few weeks ago, and I wasn't sure whether to include the story or not, because, I, I, to be honest, I'm not a baseball fan. I don't actually like baseball. We've got Adrian with us this morning, who uh, loves his American football and even coaches it, but even Adrian's not a baseball fan. But I thought I'd have a look then on YouTube, and it turns out that Bobby Richardson was a Christian, not just a Christian, a really committed follower of Jesus Christ. And if you've got to spare half an hour this week, go on to YouTube Type in Bobby Richardson Baseball and then look underneath for Bobby Richardson on Faith and Baseball Inspiring Stories. And it's an interview that took place in Christ Community Church in the States. And whether you're a sports fan or not, particularly if you are a sports fan, but even if you're not a sports fan, it's really, really worthwhile watching. But Bobby tells the story of Mickey Mantle, an even bigger baseball legend than himself. And if you want to get the, the video ready to go, guys... Uh, so Mickey Mantle was a womanizer, he was an alcoholic, and he practically drank himself to death. But he came to faith in Jesus, just on his de- more or less on his deathbed. And he asked Bobby to take his funeral service, which again you can watch on YouTube. But that's me finished, and I'm off to sit down, and hopefully the video clip is ready to go. And just as I go to sit down, my closing question to you this morning, if you're not a follower of Jesus, whether you're in the room with us or whether you're watching at home, If you're not a follower of Jesus yet, which Hall of Fame would you rather be in? Now, now, Bobby, you went on to do his funeral. And uh, packed church, a couple thousand people in the church. Uh, Who knows how many watching on TV. What what did you say at the funeral of Mickey Mayle? Well, Mickey had heard me use these words before. And uh, he said, I want to use them on my day in New York. Didn't have a chance. Too much going on that day. And I concluded the service, these words, that I think sums up everything. It was written by a friend of mine by the name of Walt Huntley. It says, your name may not appear down here in this world's Hall of Fame. In fact, you may be so unknown that no one knows your name. The trophies, the honors, the flashbulbs here may pass you by. And neon lights are blue. But if you know and love the Lord, then I have news for you. This Hall of Fame is only good as long as time shall be. But keep in mind, God's Hall of Fame is for eternity. This crowd on earth, they soon forget the heroes of the past. They cheer like mad until you fall. And that's how long you last. But in God's Hall of Fame, by just believing in his son, inscribed, you'll find your name. 
I tell you, friend, I wouldn't trade my name, however small, that's written there beyond the stars in that celestial hall for every famous name on earth or glory that they share. I'd rather be an unknown here, have my name up there. I guess that really does say it all.